All right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are, lesson 136. And yep, still haven't said this in a good old while. Still plowing through the scriptures. Esther 7 through 8. And you know, I think I said that phrase pretty much every day in the Pentateuch. It's nice to be back. You know, here's what we're looking at. You know, we're looking at uh, an incredible story where our, our phrase is the despised one. Like that's kind of a weird phrase for you know the scripture because you know when you look at Esther, Esther comes in and you know she saves the day. But but the reality is, as much as she does, you know who also does Mordecai. Mordecai, the family relative of Esther that helps adopt, take care of Esther. He's the one that's sitting outside the king's gate. He's the one that's fasting and and crying. He's the one that's sending the letters out to all of Israel. He's the one that's getting uh, Esther's attention. Like he's intervening constantly. And then here's the crazy thing is, is all of this started because of Mordecai. It wasn't actually because of Esther, it's because of Mordecai, because Haman, the Agagite, right? The, the original lineage comes from the Amalekites because Haman gets mad at Mordecai because Mordecai will not stand up and recognize Haman. And so Haman calls him this despised Jew, like these Jewish people that will not ever subject to, yes, Haman. So you know what he does? Haman says, I'm going to kill them all. And so because of Mordecai, the Jews all become despised. And now we're in this crux of like this, this meeting of, of Esther and the king and Haman. And so, yes, we've had multiple invitations. We've already had one banquet, correct? Now we're getting ready to have, you know, we had a second banquet. But here's the crazy thing. As she's getting ready, Esther's going to get ready to reveal Haman and really who Haman is. But Haman thinks... Hey, this is this couldn't be so bad. And so when we go to Esther 7, here's a little bit of your backdrop. It says, The king and Haman, they came to the feast with Esther the queen. Only three of them. Verse 2, the scripture just says this. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, All right, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. And you know what he's going to say, right? You know it, right? Hey, I'm going to give you half the kingdom. Whatever you seek, even, even to half the kingdom will be done. Scripture says in verse 3, Queen Esther answered, if I've obtained your approval, here it is. Now remember, we've been talking about this. It's appropriate to understand the time. It's appropriate to understand the place. And like Esther's been super sensitive to understanding when to release this request because the golden scepter had already been tipped. She's already touched the tip of it. She's already coming before the king. She's ready. Now on the flip side, Haman does the complete opposite, right? He builds these gallows, right, to hang Mordecai. So what is Mordecai hoping, or what is Haman hoping to do, Kevin, at this time? Hang the Jews, basically. Yeah, so he wants to come in and hang uh, Mordecai. So he's coming to the table, and they both have this, this thought process, right? But the problem was is they didn't work out because Mordecai was being honored. And so now Haman is all confused, and here's what, here's what you have with Esther. She says, if I've obtained your approval, my king and the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request, and spare my people. This is my desire. Now, if, I, if, I'm, a, if I'm the king, I'd be like, what are you... What are you talking about? <laughs> and she says in verse 4, Scripture continues, For my people and I have been sold out to the destruction, death, and extermination. If we've merely been sold as male, uh, uh, male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. But it, it goes beyond that. 
And here's where Esther begins to reveal Haman's plot. King Ahasuerus spoke up and he said, hey, who is this? And where is this one who would devise such a scheme? Scripture continues on in verse 6. Esther answered the, the adversary and enemy. Is this evil Haman? Haman stood terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7. Angered by this, the king rose from where they were, drinking wine, went to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Yeah, absolutely. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, you see finally it come back on him. It says this in verse 8. Then uh, as the king returned from the palace garden to the house of wine drinking, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Well, that doesn't work out so well. The king explained, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the palace? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, Haman's face was covered. Verse 9. Harbona, one of the royal eunuchs, said there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for, for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. And so what does the king do? Oh, the king said, hang him. Hang him on it. And all of this in the flesh, when Haman tried to force the issue, when his wife and his friends tried to force the issue, it flipped. Mordecai got recognized, so Haman couldn't do anything. And then the eunuchs go, hey, this dude just built this. Why not use it? So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. All right. Praise the Lord. Haman's out of the picture. We have a problem, though. The decree has still been issued. So even though the evil one is out of the picture, even though the one that hates the despised one, Mordecai, it's still in motion. Everybody's already received, Kevin, if you can go to that big map of of, uh, Persia. Everybody's already received 127 provinces. All of them have received, guess what? You can go ahead and kill the, the Jews on this day. 15 million Jews, probably out of 100. And yet this is the season and time that Esther's here. You know, it just seems like even though Haman is gone, it just seems like history will always say, man, it just seems like people are after the Jews. Man, they're just trying. It's the anti-Semitic stuff of trying to wipe off God's chosen people. I mean, when's the last time you've heard like countries trying to wipe off people from Jamaica? Like when's the last time you've heard people trying to wipe off, you know, people from you just pick a country, Iceland. This doesn't happen. But over and over and over again, because of Haman and the Amalekites, really thousand years ago, and now the Agagites, here they are, they're trying to wipe off the Israelites. It's because God's hand is on his chosen people. And it's almost like Satan realizes he's trying to destroy Genesis 12, 1 through 3 covenant. He's trying to wipe off, oh, the Abrahamic covenant. And there are times, you guys, it looks like it's going to get close. Because right now, at this point, even though Haman's been removed from the scene, it's still in motion. And so I just I kind of was processing through this. And I, I don't really ever get historically uh, current. I don't I don't really talk about the past and then bring it to the future in the sense of just, you know, countries and stuff. But I, I just felt like I needed to go there with the Holocaust. And so I just started reading through and studying some stuff. And I know, Kevin, you have a picture here of the Holocaust. It's the name given to the mass slaughter of Jews by the Nazis during World War II. The Nazis killed, you guys, six million Jews. In fact, Hitler actually had a plan uh, spelled out for the Holocaust in his book, Mein Kampf. And I think for me, here you have Hitler here, and you can just go back to Revive School page, Kevin. Um, like, it's crazy to me. Why would one man want to destroy the Jews? Same reason Haman. Why would Haman want to destroy the Jews? When I go through the Holocaust, okay, in Auschwitz, okay, a million Jews were killed in Auschwitz. 
This is during the, uh, the, uh, the Holocaust time period. This is from stats from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And I, I might pronounce some of these locations, but there's numerous locations. Treblinka 2, 925,000 Jews killed. Rich, what was this time period? 1940s. 1940s, during the World War II time period. We're talking like people in our lifetime, there are some still uh, Holocaust survivors. I think that's what blows my mind, is that the enemy is still trying to do this today. He's still trying to be and, and find a Haman. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to find a Haman. He's trying to find an Antichrist spirit that's going to come in and wipe him out. And here you have Belzec, 434,508 Jewish people killed. Sababar, 167,000. In Kelmno, excuse me if I'm not pronouncing all these right, 172,000 Jewish people killed in the Holocaust. In central southern Poland, 200,000. In western Poland, 20,000. In fact, Rich, I don't know if you remember this discussion we were, when we were in the Middle East. Poland actually got upset that people were starting to reference Poland. Do you remember this? That, that they said that the Holocaust took place in parts of Poland. And they denounced this historically. Well, that doesn't do anything, you guys. And then there's other parts, other facilities, 150,000. In the Soviet Union alone, 1.3 million. In other facilities near the Soviet Union, 55,000. In Serbia, 15,008 Jews. Croatia, 25,000. And then really all of the other areas, 1.3 million. We're looking at uh, 6 million Jews. And I believe the enemy truly tried to use Hitler to wipe them off, just like he tried to use uh, Haman. And so like you can say, oh, that spirit is done. You guys, it, it's still going today. Now that was in the 40s, but now in my lifetime, you know, the Iranian uh, dictator, uh, how do you say his name, Rich? Abinajad. Abinajad. This is what he said, okay? He's no longer the Iranian uh, dictator right now, but there is no doubt that the new wave of attacks in Palestine, okay, he's referencing Israel, will wipe off this stigma, Israel. From the face of the Islamic world. So what does he want to do? Bottom line, he wants to wipe off Israel off the face of the map. How would you like to be the country Israel that is constantly living every day with the, the knowledge that Iran wants to wipe Israel off? It sure sounds to me like, it sure sounds to me like it's a modern day Haman. I'm not trying to be depressing. I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm just trying to tell you this spirit is still here today. And you want to know why? Because of the despised ones. There's this anti-Semitic language that's out there that we don't even believe Israel exists. Let's not even use that language. It's only use Palestine. And so because of that, let's just wipe them off. And I think for me, you know, that's why this picture of Mordecai really paints a picture, a true picture of the coming Messiah. I really believe that Mordecai is the despised one who won't bow down. He refuses to give in to the enemy. And that's exactly what Christ does. He is, in, in a weird way, you guys, the despised one as well. Let's go to this just a little bit, Kevin, if we can. Can you go to 1 Corinthians? Let's just start up here somewhere else, actually. Let's go to John 1, 11. Okay, first of all, remember this. Christ came to his own people. Now, Mordecai, he came, obviously, he came to, uh, you know, to a different people group and was rejected. Christ came to his own people. In John 1, 11, it says he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Okay, so there's one form of rejection, even amidst his own. He was the despised one. But then, Kevin, you helped me with this text here. First Peter 2, 4, same mentality. 
First Peter 2, 4 says this, Coming to him, right, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. Rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. It sure seems like in the time of Esther, Mordecai is the rejected one. Mordecai is the despised one. But God says, no, I've chosen him. You know, I love that. I love the subject Esther. I love that it's named after her. But part of me just says, but Mordecai is the picture of the coming Christ. Mordecai is the one that actually, you know, has this hidden, uh, he, he reveals the hidden secrets until the appropriate time. It's just very similar to what Christ does. And in fact, Kevin, let's go to one more of, of the despised one. Mark 12, verse 10. Haven't you read the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Here you go again, Christ being rejected. And yet he is the essential piece, the cornerstone of everything. And if it wasn't for Mordecai, honestly... I'm not sure what would have happened in Esther. And then finally, just to to give you a picture of of the despised one, how Mordecai in his life actually, I believe, points to the coming Messiah. Kevin, if you'll go to 1 Corinthians 1 verse 29, it just says this. Uh, Let's go back to 28 if we can. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world. What is viewed as nothing to bring nothing what is viewed as something. And in verse 29, it says, so that no one can boast in his presence. So I know it's not about me. I know it's not about us. That's because it's all about him. And in verse 30 and 31, it says, but it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in verse 31, in order, as it is written, the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. Haman was all about himself, was he not? Haman was all about, hey, look what I can do. And Mordecai was truly about fasting and mourning and weeping and crying out to the Lord. And guess what? He can now boast that God showed up. So what you see in Esther 7 is, is Haman is dead, but now what do you do? The decree has already taken place. So in Esther 8, 1, it says this, that same day, okay, that same day that what? Haman was dead. King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, Haman, excuse me, Haman. So Queen Esther just got the enemy of the Jews' land. Everything about it. That's kind of cool. I just kind of find that like, oh, that's really kind of cool. Mordecai then entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. So now Mordecai, by being associated with Esther, he has nothing. His identity has been revealed. Scripture continues on in verse 2. The king removed his signet ring that he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. So what does that mean? Mordecai right now truly had just been appointed the prime minister. He had just been appointed a very high-ranking official. And Esther put him now in charge of Haman's estate. Just like that, he went from not bowing down to now he has everything. In Esther 8 verse 3, it says, Then Esther, here's what happened. Esther addressed the king again, and she fell at his feet different is this not different than the first time but now you have a second approach she fell at his feet wept and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot that he had devised against the Jews so even though the dead man is here the consequences are still real and in verse 4 the king extended the golden scepter toward Esther so at this point she's just like I'm in I didn't even care she's not even processing let's go she got up and stood before the king because the king extended the scepter in verse 5 she said if it pleases the king I found approval before him If the matter seems right to the king and I'm pleasing in his sight, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, wrote to the destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. Scripture continues on in verse 6, because you have to understand this decree is real. 
and the death sentence is still out there. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Can you go to James 4, verse 2 for me, Kevin? James 4, verse 2. So Esther just falls down and says, I I, I need this. Scripture says, you desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have. Here it is. Because you do not ask. Esther was not afraid to ask. I think that's what I'd ask for you guys, for me, for all of us here. Is like when your heart is prepared, you've fasted, you've prayed, you've wept, you've discerned, you've walked out this process. Don't be afraid to be bold and ask the king. Don't be afraid to be bold enough to say, God, this is what I'm sensing. Would you please move this mountain? And Esther radically asked for this mountain to be moved. And here in verse 7, here's what you see. King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen, back in Esther, yep, 8 verse 7. Look, I've given Haman's estate to Esther. And he was hanged on the gallows uh, because he attacked the Jews. It continues on in verse 8. You may write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews and seal it with the royal signet ring. A document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. I, I think this is the craziest thing, but our little ministry has been asked to start doing some of this. Tom, when you see that, does that not just, everything comes to, to life? Yes, I mean, you're right. I mean, just today we're doing stuff just like that. Man, when I read verse eight, I mean, and I think about my life the last week, I'm like, and write whatever, you, whatever pleases you concerning the Jews. You're like, yeah, I, I think that's, that's happening. God can still move like this today, you guys. God still wants to use the Mordecai's. He still wants to use the Esther's to radically, yes, uh, encourage and bless and love on the Jewish people. And in this context, he wants to save them physically from harm. And hey, by the way, you seal it with the royal signet ring and I'm gonna, your document is written in the king's name. You just go ahead and put my name on there. <laughs> seal it with the ring and it, it can't be revoked. So we're going to counter the decree that's been released, but you write it and then you send it. So they're sending out a second letter. That's important to understand. The first letter, Kevin, was what? On a certain day, you're going to kill all the Jews. So on a certain day, you're going to kill all the Jews. But now what you're going to see on verse 9 is another day. It says, on the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned. Everything was written exactly as Mordecai ordered for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language. Okay, do you catch this? They're even speaking to them so that they can read it and understand it in their own language. This isn't like, hey, I hope you have a translator. No, we're going to make sure everybody understands this. And so you have the first decree in April 14th, 474 B.C. That was when the first letter went out. And now here you have eight months now that has been released. Guys, you need to get ready for this attack. It's coming. I am giving you permission to defend and, yes, even attack if necessary. I always kind of wonder, though, when I read this, why wouldn't they have done that anyway? Right? Like if somebody's going to come to kill you, you're not going to be like, okay, you know what I mean? Like, but it just for some reason it just it, it stirred up in the morale and said, guys, we can defend ourselves. It made people believe in themselves. And then in verse 11, 
I'm sorry, in verse 10, Mordecai wrote in King Azarias' name, sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast, horses bred from the royal racing mares. Keep going to verse 11. The king's edict, he gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves. Now look at this. This is where it's kind of like, whoa, you guys just went crazy. To destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them. So like, not just defend yourself. No, you can actually wipe them out. You can destroy them including women and children, and take their possessions as spoils of war. In other words, guys, it's going to get ugly. But I'm giving you permission to walk out this second decree, June 25th, 474 B.C. When it comes, you get ready. The first decree that was released was April 14th, 474 B.C. And now here we have the second decree. Don't hold back on June 25th, 474 B.C. It's going to take place in verse 12 on a single day. Throughout all of the provinces of King Assyrius, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, a copy of the text, in other words, you guys, you've got to be ready, issued as law throughout every province. So now it's a law, you've got to defend yourself, was distributed to all the people so that the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against the enemies on that day. And I love verse 14, maybe my favorite verse in Esther. It says, the couriers, they rode out in haste on their royal horses, at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Guys, you want to take a stab at why I think this is one of the coolest verses? The couriers rode out in haste. What, what are they delivering right now? Basically a decree that says, don't touch them. Yeah, it's good. I, it's, kind of, you're getting there. What would you say, Rich? Anything else? They're delivering the good news. They're simply delivering the good news. Hey, by the way, you can fight back. So you have couriers, and look how it says, they wrote out in haste. They have such good news. The king has released the letters coming from Mordecai, coming from Esther. Hey guys, everybody needs to know about the news. You can actually be saved from this death that's coming to you. You actually can find freedom in actually standing up for what you believe in. I'm going to read through a quote here from Whitcomb. Uh, it just says this, this, this verse provides a remarkable uh, cogent illustration of even what people would consider missionary work today. God's death sentence hangs over literally a sinful humanity. Now, I'm not just talking for the Jewish people. I'm talking about, obviously, in the New Covenant, the New Testament. God's sentence, death sentence hangs over a sinful humanity, but He always, this is cool, has always commanded us to hasten the message of salvation to every person and into every land. Only by a knowledge of and a response to the second decree. Think about this. The first decree was you're going to all die. But the second decree says that there is saving grace that through Christ can the terrible effects of the first decree of universal condemnation for sin be averted. The first decree for every single one of us, if we want to apply this today to our lives, is that you and I are destined literally because of sin and death. We have truly, just by being born, we are automatically the despised ones in humanity, all of us, because of sin. And it leads to death in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That's the first decree for all of humanity. But then when you start thinking through and praying through, okay, Mordecai intervenes for his people. Esther intervenes for his people. And they, they do something about it. On behalf of the king, they release the good news. The king gave them permission, please go spread the good news. And that's really what the good news in the new covenant does. When you realize, hey, there's a new decree. Christ literally came here on earth 
And he, he, he died on the cross. And for three days he was dead, but on the third day he came back to life. And because he came back to life, literally that first decree can be null and void. It's gone. It's, it's done. But many people don't know that there's a second decree. People live in the first decree. People still live in the sin and death and that death is coming. It, it, it's almost like they're waiting, you guys. And I'm just going to say this here. It's almost like they're, they're waiting for June 20, uh, well, yeah, the June 25th date. It's like they're waiting just to die and they're okay with it. But you guys, the good news is, no, 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 no. You guys, here's the best part and here's the difference. You don't have to fight for this one. You just say, Jesus, I embrace what you've done. When you have faith that Christ actually took away the first decree, you have life. It says the couriers wrote out in haste. Why? Because they knew the first decree could be wiped away. And there's a new, there's a new decree. It's literally out with the old. No longer do you have to adhere and live to all of the law. He says, no, I've done something better. I've wiped that out. Just trust me. You can go from sin and death all the way to life. And I guess for me, when I read through this, when I process this, you guys, like I want to be the courier. I want to be the courier that goes all over the land telling everybody, hey, by the way, the old decree is done. The new decree is is now in place. <laughs> it says in verses 15, 16, and 17, as the couriers are going out in the land, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in, in royal purple and white with a great golden crown and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. You guys, they're pre-celebrating. They're pre-celebrating because we already know we've won. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, rejoicing and jubilation took place among the Jews. When they know that they've been saved, there is something that just takes over. And there was a celebration and a holiday. And many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews. You know how radical this is? It's the only time you're going to see in Old Testament, in, in Old Testament, a Gentile converting to Jews. And anywhere in the Old Testament, these ethnic groups are so excited, they become Jewish. Because of fear of the Jews had overcome them. <laughs> it's out with the old decree and in with the new decree. And so when people got so excited and they heard about this, you know what happened? They converted. Look at this text. They professed themselves to be Jews. Can, can I just encourage you in the, new, in the new covenant? We can be couriers with this good news and running everywhere saying the decrees are, that old decree is done. And you know this, but in Luke 2, verse 20, I just, I, I, was, I was praying through this text, Luke 2, verse 20. There's a couple of illustrations that you can run with this in the New Testament. But in Luke 2, verse 20, after the shepherds had heard the good news, the shepherds had just experienced literally seeing the Messiah. It says the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. What did they do? They started testifying about the good news. The woman at the well, what does she do? She goes and tells the town, Kevin, if you'll go to John 4, verse 39 through 42. John 4, verse 39 through 42. When you've encountered the good news, you cannot stay quiet. Now, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did in verse 40. Therefore, when the Samaritans came to him, they asked to stay with him and he stayed there two days. Now watch in verse 41. Many more believed because of what he said. And then in verse 42, and they told the woman, 
We no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this is really is the Savior of the world. Because the woman at the well went and told the good news, more people got to hear the good news. More people got to believe the good news. Because the shepherds, and they experienced the good news themselves, more people got to rejoice. And my, my challenge is, is for the church, Jesus has clearly said, get on your horses and go. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, I can't make it any more clear. Jesus clearly says the decree, the first decree is done and the second decree is in place. And he says in verse 19, here's what I want you to do. Go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 20, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You know, you don't know how it's going to be received, but go. I've already commissioned you to do this. So let's be couriers like they were in Esther's time because I believe lives can be changed and saved because of this message. All right, bless y'all. This is Esther 7 and 8. And guess what? We'll talk to you tomorrow as we wrap up this book. Thanks.